Hello, everybody. Welcome to the eighth annual Football Writing Festival here at the National Football Museum. It's so great to see so many people um, tonight. We, uh, are we walking on Chinch first? Yes, so yeah. in reverse order. Well, naturally. Night, no, wait a minute, what do you mean reverse? Oh, you mean height. sitting down. Really yeah, not significant. Steve's still got his phone out. What are you doing? Tweeting pictures. Don't let me walk out on my own and then not follow me out. Actually, that would be really funny. What? We just let Chinch join. We've got about 45 minutes now. Then have a 15-minute break. You can get more beer. 45 minutes. I'm not sure we'll fill it. We will. We can blather. He's very good, isn't he? Yeah. He's very good, isn't he? See if he wants to swap. host a podcast that way. See if he wants to swap in for me. The other thing I was going to say is Set Piece Men, you've just been nominated for an FSA Podcast of the Year award. Oh, yeah. Which we won't win. Which we won't win. Um, do try and vote for them and, 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 and show them how much you love what they do. Um, yeah, without further ado, I just want to introduce uh, our host of the night. Um, so, okay, if we can have a massive round of applause, please, for Hugh Ferris of Set Piece Menu. <laughs> The only thing, the only conversation we've had is about choreography, and it really confused you that you had to go on first. No, but that's Sam's fault, because I am not Hugh Ferris. I don't want anyone to think that I'm Hugh Ferris. Please welcome Andy Hinchcliffe and three other people. <laughs> that was now what you preferred. Uh, welcome to Set Piece Menu Live from Manchester's National Football Museum, celebrating 250 episodes of the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, Pop-Up Exhibition, Rory Smith, Kid Zone. And Andy yeah. Hinchcliffe, exit via the gift shop. Yeah. Please welcome them all, ladies and gentlemen. I don't like that. You don't I like got, it? I got kids zone. <laughs> uh, we are very honoured to be part of the museum's football writing festival this year, especially seeing that as things stand, there is only one published author. Uh, on the stage currently. Uh, I say that in a manner of a tease, yes, because um, Andy Hinchcliffe's Chronicles of Jack Reachcliffe, uh, currently to tender with many high-profile oh, publishing many, houses many, in that there, London. Yeah, so yep. looking forward to that yep. eventual publication. We're also very grateful that you've come to see us. This is our second ever live show. It's very near to our third, so thanks for coming and making us realize that a third is maybe possible. Um, it's good for our ego, but thank you very much indeed for spending the time with us uh, this evening, even if you managed to beat the traffic for Disney on Ice, which apparently is what we're competing with this yeah. evening, hence only two children in the audience here. Um, hello, Wyeths. <laughs> you see, they threatened to say hello, Daddy, so I thought I'd out them before they had the chance. Um, this is a live recording, so you'll be able to hear yourselves when it's released as our podcast next week. So there is an ambient microphone. It's very important that you laugh loudly so that you can pick out your own laugh when you hear it <laughs> next Wednesday. That's important for, for you, not for us. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, we would normally on the podcast have a correspondence section uh, at the beginning, but uh, we now know that as the further ado. We are dispensing with the further ado because before what we call a debate, you call nonsensical waffle, uh, we wanted to at least give you the opportunity to be a part of the show, but that will come at the end. So we're going to have a Q&A a little bit later. That will be our further ado okay. uh, for today's podcast. Although, one warning. We will be broadcasting the Q&A. So please reflect that in your questions. There will be nothing about Neville Southall's appendages or, indeed, who we support. 
But apart from that, have a think about what questions you'd like to ask uh, they all, as we get along. A little they all bit know later. who we support. It's right up there. Oh, yes. Sorry. That is a, 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 a matter of actual evidential fact. Mm. So that's important. Um, the food for the podcast is um, actually rather sentimental, if you'll indulge us. We have not been in the same room to share food, which was the essential original tenet of the podcast, since March 2020. And after we finish here, we are all going to be having our first meal together since March of 2020. Chinch, you just, you've got I, something I else? I can't make it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Nikki's making prawn linguine, so I've got to, I've got to shoot off. But oh, I was right, going to tell okay. you that later on. It's well, fast we, food, Chinch, don't worry. You'll okay. have we, we do have food. We've got a rider. We do oh. have a rider. We've got you've, a rider. You've tucked away your hula hoops already, yeah. so that's important. We've got hula hoops, four Kit Kats, and I think two Tunnock's caramel wafers. <laughs> one. Is, one was it, no, that was just, that's just I got here first. Name. Oh, I had the other one. one. Yeah. The, um, it's pretty rock and roll back there. Uh, and the football is. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Yep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait a minute, museum. Something to do with talk about the history of football. <laughs> we are, we talk are, well done, Chinch. Talk. Well done, well done. Great, yep. Uh, we are in a piece of programming <laughs> that required a good deal of groupthink and many planning meetings talking about history. Yes. You were expecting applause there, Chinch, weren't you? Yes. Didn't happen. In what would appear to be our direct trolling of our kindly hosts this evening, but in fact provides us with an opportunity to pay tribute to them instead, uh, we are asking, is football any good at curating its own history? Yes, you have an extraordinary building here with four floors of football memorabilia and more, but is this totem of sporting historical significance a shining example of Manchester's indelible... Okay, that's enough. Have we got more, Ryder? Yes, thank you very much indeed. Is it the exception, not the rule? And does the lack of self-promotion of football's past lead to a lack of self-reflection in the present? Now, we will start our conversation about footballing history with Mr. Rory Smith, because you want your eight pounds worth of monologue <laughs> to be redeemed as soon as possible. <laughs> so, Rory. Is that like, get it out of the way? Yeah, get it yeah. out of the way, and we can all sit back. Stopwatch. Keep on topic as well. We don't want you going yeah. off on one. Okay. Yeah? Okay, right. Uh, you wrote a book, Rory. This is why we're starting with Rory. The real reason why we're starting with Rory. You wrote a book which, to many, including me, reveals a, um, a hugely significant part of English football history that would have shed light on that period for a lot of people, the uninitiated. It had laid relatively dormant until you found your niche and wrote a book about it. And the fact that you had to write a book about it is kind of what we're talking about today. I'm really worried about having suggested this because at some point I'm going to mention the NFL. Oh, do, oh. Just, just look already? at the notes. Top, oh, no. Top notes. no. Yeah. Right. This needs to be a 40-minute monologue. Right, so, <laughs> so I just so go. we don't get go. to American sport. We'll get to the interval. We'll do the Q&A. Fine. Yeah. The, so I think football isn't particularly good at curating its history, and this is the exception that proves the rule. And I, I'm interested in why that is, because there, is, there are so many gaps in our understanding of where the sport has been, where it came from, how it developed. And I don't know why those gaps have been allowed to kind of to come into being. But if you compare it certainly to the NFL, so the NFL had NFL films pretty much from the start, who, whose job was to create these grand sweeping kind of narratives of the season and of the, the Super Bowls. And football has none of that. And one thing that you realize when you res research football history is how much of it is kind of unreliable. So the main source for pretty much everything is Brian Glanville, who was always one of my journalistic heroes. 
but quite often when you're checking what Brian Glanville wrote, the person you're checking it against is Brian Glanville. <laughs> so it is entirely possible that, like there'll all be all these kind of famous anecdotes about Italian coaches from the 50s. Brian Glanville could have made literally all of those people up. There is no way of checking. He could have just invented like Fulvio Flescenti and been like, yeah, he was this incredible, incredible coach who invented the, the key and the lodge system and no one knows. And Jonathan Wilson writes it down and, <laughs> and gets a best-selling book out of it. But there's no way of checking it because it's all, it is just Brian Glanville and Brian Glanville obviously probably didn't make most of it up. But you, you don't really know. And there has been, I think, over the course of the last, it's changed now. But for a long time, there wasn't really an attempt to write like a cogent history of football. And it's why places like this are really important. But I do think a lot has probably been lost along the way. So how did you research your book, bearing in mind that that was quite a lot of a period before even Brian Glanville was alive slash writing? Uh, I, I can imagine you kind of poring over microfiches in a, in a library somewhere, but uh, that might be just because I watch lots of American television. No, that was, it wasn't microfiche, but yeah, old newspapers. So there was the athletic news from like 1915, no, it was the middle of the war, they probably weren't putting it out then, to be fair. <laughs> like, maybe 1919 onwards, they had the Athletic News, which was a sports newspaper, like a British version of Gazetta. And what the, the, the thing that I enjoyed the most about that was you think of, like, transfer rumours as being a really modern phenomenon. But in 1923, I think, the Athletic News splashed on Zamora, Ricardo Zamora, the goalkeeper, signing for Real Madrid from Athletic Bilbao, that was the front page of the Athletic News in 1923. People just really love transfers, even in, in the height of the roaring 20s. They're going in their, fla they're in their flapper dresses, they're driving their big cars, and they don't wonder who's signing for, signing for Real Madrid. So, but it was, it was all old newspapers, and a lot of that's unreliable as well, because it was, you, you can't really check that against anything. So you kind of come up with a narrative that you think works and makes sense, but there's been no real attempt to contextualize any of that until kind of the boom of football book writing that starts, I guess, with like Simon Cooper in the 1990s, around then, the post-fever pitch boom. Well, it's interesting because uh, you won't see this because you're facing this way, and obviously that's the right thing to do, but there are several pictures which are slightly more appealing to look at behind you, and one of them uh, that we see staring down at us is, is Sir Alex Ferguson, and that's the era that you're talking about. And there, there are so many stories to be told within our lifetimes that actually we are more aware of because we've lived through them. Mm -hmm. But there will be so many gaps, even though we as football journalists and football watchers and football players have incredible repute, yeah. we, we have mm -hmm. huge gaps in our knowledge. Now, is that because of the, the, the size of the game and the fact that it is a global sport? Or is this something that, because you mentioned the NFL, I'll do it briefly, it's, you can encapsulate the NFL. It is mm. easily marketable in that way because it is one sport, one country, and actually only 55, 60 years of it since the Super Bowl era started. So mm -hmm. if, if we're looking back to the mid-90s and thinking about Andy Hinchcliffe in his pomp, we can mm. do that. Television existed in colour, yeah. and we were also able to you know, reflect on it within our own lives. So mm. can you understand that there has been at least some reflection by football that it needs to improve its game? Well, Again, you bounce a little back into uh, uh, the 90s and think about my career and be, be highly aroused. It's, it's only natural. Um, but for all the wrong reasons. But is it, again, that we've been, we've been forced to look back? Because to me, it always seems to be we're thinking about today and tomorrow. That they're the, the really important things. How is football going to develop? Who's going to win the next title? Who's going to be the next superstar? We, we tend, maybe, is that just in England? Or is that maybe in Europe? Have we always 
looked forward rather than backwards and felt that looking backwards, we're not, we're not gaining anything from looking backwards. We're not learning anything that we can then take into the future. Is, that, is it a cultural... Are we the problem or is, has the sport been the problem in the past? Is it not interesting enough to look back on? The lingering Britishness that we continue to contribute to football is that we're all just a little bit too busy getting on with it mm. to worry about reflecting for too long about those big moments that, you know, Chinch's, well, two major finals give a perfect illustration of that. Mm -hmm. He plays in an FA Cup final. What's the then, other major final? Well, he, he thinks the Charity Shield was That's a not major a final. final. <laughs> he thinks it was. That's like the sports personality of the year. He's got two trophies. Don't take one of them away from him. <laughs> He's not got a sports personality of the year. Not yet. Never going to win Who that, amount, to be fair. Mm. It, it, there's so much football, it keeps ticking over relentlessly. And there isn't that gap between seasons or gap between achievements to give you that moment to take stock. You see, I think it's a class thing. Because cricket has a history. Cricket curates its history yeah, But properly. they can't play cricket for eight months. So it year. might be that, yeah, after, after like September, they're like, right, it's raining. Let's just yeah. wind on about what's happened over the last four months. <laughs> <laughs> Three games we played. Yeah. Rugby has a history. Reading about it is all you've got for a majority yeah. of the year. You can't get out and play it. Well, and the same with rugby, that it's much better to read about it than watch it or play it. That's a, that is a play the hits. It's cultural and class. I think it's class. I think look, yeah. until, probably until the 90s, a lot of people didn't think that the people who would like, be the constituency of like, the literati didn't think football was worth it. I, I think there wasn't playing in about '88. So really, you're saying is that I'm not saying it was down to me. Wasn't the Taylor report? It was Chinch. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying I'm not putting words in your mouth, but that's basically what you're saying. It does. I, I mean, it I certainly yeah, yeah. it certainly yeah. correlates. But, yes, it does. But the end yeah. of last season gives you an example: Manchester City win the Premier League, and a week later are playing in the Champions League final. They have a couple of days to enjoy being Premier League champions before that achievement is either surpassed by the next that they achieve or as they, as they were, they were beaten in the final, and what they managed to do a week earlier is replaced by something even better. So that just a brief moment in time to celebrate being Premier League champions before that is rendered insignificant by another English team winning the Champions League. But that also speaks to something that's, that's inherent within football, and Ferdy sums it up, that attitude of put your medals in the bin. So that was Clough at yeah, Leeds, yeah. was throw your medals in the bin, you've, you've, you've won them wrong. Yeah. And Ferdy used to tell all of his United teams, Right, well done, you've won the title. Let's think about the next one. It's about that next, is, yeah. That exactly, is so yeah. miserable. Can you imagine you worked like nine months to like, achieve this dream and then your boss goes, well, all right, it doesn't mean that much. You've got to win this, the next one this, now. It goes back to this complacency, which we talked about in a previous podcast. Again, that's why I think coaches do that. But if that gets into the players' heads and into their all they're looking for is, is, is the next edge, what can win them the next trophy. So they're always going to be naturally looking ahead as clubs and players, aren't they? But as fans, isn't it the fans that can then say, hang on a minute, shouldn't we be looking back and appreciating? Or don't we appreciate? Don't we appreciate? Do we think that was so different, the football that was played from today, that what's the point in celebrating it or even having any knowledge of it? There is an obsession with the modern. Yeah. I think that's right. But equally, I think it's so fractured. It's so tribal that there's elements of... City's quite a good example. It's quite... I can't ever quite get the traction of people to agree with me on this, but Colin Bell, the big mural of Colin Bell outside the Etihad, and the, the outpouring of grief after Colin Bell's death, which was all very, very, was all totally understandable, great player. It felt like Colin Bell wasn't celebrated that much when he was alive, and that's always the natural, that's, that's natural, we don't celebrate people when they're alive enough. 
But I do wonder to what extent it's because Colin Bell belongs to City. So United fans don't really want to celebrate yeah. Colin Bell. They don't want that piece of history. They don't want the bits of history that don't apply to them. But then this tribalism kicks in again then, does it? I think it probably makes it much harder to write a, a coherent story of football over 100 years. Yeah. And we're also, certainly it's a British thing, and I don't know whether that extends anywhere else, but we're better at being nostalgic when there's something to be sombre about. Blue passports. There you go. Yeah. We, we, it's almost seen as grubby to be nostalgic about a success. Freedom something of brilliant. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you look at the, snooty, the snootiness of, or the growing snootiness about sports personality of the year. The one thing we do each year where we celebrate the sporting year and increasingly, there's a snobbishness about it. I was like, oh, why are we even bothering? Why are we even comparing? Which is a category you fall into. But that's, <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree with the award. I disagree with the fact that the BBC treat it as all the other sporting events of the year are a qualifier for that. So, like, Andy Murray wins Wimbledon. He'll be in with a chance at sports personality. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't yes. care. But why is, why is that a bad thing? Because Andy Murray normally only competes against other tennis players. Why is it so bad that if he's had a good year, at the end of the year, we, A, look back on that and go, oh, wasn't he brilliant? And then we see how that fits in against some of the other things that I, happened I, in the I, th I think the, the, the fact is, is that, that there is a, a varying degree of interest in that, and the, the most interest is probably in a meeting room at the BBC. Um, and I would imagine those people who watch the programme, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, it just means that that is a select group of people. But you, you, you spoke about the reticence of fans to, to want to commemorate or celebrate history because of the tribalism. And you, you mentioned Fergie as well, Rory, because if there is this sense of immediately throwing the medals in the bin and wanting to think about the next possible success that comes around the corner about the journey, not the destination, there is a general reticence, is there not, to therefore celebrate at any point until we used to into Ryan Giggs a lot, didn't we, Steve, where he, he would say, because he was the you know, most decorated player, and so he'd be the person to provide that context, that historical context on what he'd done and then put it into context for the rest of the team as well. And he'd always say, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it, I'm just going to talk to you about it at the end of my career. And he carried on playing until he was after 40. So as a, as a journalist or as a person attempting to chronicle this history, you're not going to get the buy-in from the very people who took part in it, and they're not going to be able to tell you their story until a time that is suitable to them. And it may well be that they are less relevant, it may well be that the context isn't as important, or it simply may well be, as Steve said, that we've moved on. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Football is a shark. It, it continually moves forward. That is, that is definitely true. But I think the bigger thing is that we may be, and maybe this is me just changing the subject so that I'm right, but <laughs> the, because, the, um, because we, haven't we haven't had that kind of coherent story, you, you actually lose a lot of the development. So Ryan Giggs, which is a weird, can we use another example? Yes, by all means. It was player. only because we, we happened to ask him that very question. We can't use all the time. The same we thing. can't use Paul Strolls to the, the thing. But <laughs> <laughs> there must have been must have been another player who's not been tarnished. <laughs> William Prunier. William Prunier really <laughs> will have really, really contributed. Will have really cherished Michel Silvestre will have really cherished his whose head shape is that? <laughs> the will have really cherished all those medals. But the, you must lose something a little bit in the if you're only going to talk about them 10 years later, like, you don't have that same... But that's the discipline that they apply to themselves. Mm. They don't want to be the one who goes against that. They don't want to be the sh shark swimming backwards, no. when, especially when you've got Sir Alex Ferguson looking over them saying, I, I don't appreciate you feeling like that. You are not going to fit in here. So they're never going to take the chance to do it. And but that surely is reflected in a wider... It encourages us to continually kind of not reflect on what's happened before. That maybe is what happens, yeah. We, we reflect on your career, Chinch, with great joy. Um, because you really, though? No. Yeah, but it's, it's no, easy, no, 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 no. It's be, easy be to be honest. Be honest. 
How many games did I play? Just about 400. I once thought it was 600 and forgot all your knee injuries. So you, you followed it closely then? Yeah. Yes, 400. Anyway, 400 is right, is it? No. How no. many games did you play? This is the whole point. He's just saying we followed your career closely. None of you... No, we enjoy the concept of it. <laughs> there was a concept to it. Because it lends the podcast a degree of authenticity. What was the concept? What was the concept? Look, we interviewed a lot of people for your position on this podcast. <laughs> Did you? Leon Osman. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What, recently? Yeah, well, no, at the start and also as a sort of continual process. Oh, yeah. I see, yeah. Lasso was too expensive. Guppy wouldn't do it. <laughs> He's always had a brain guppy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. wasn't interested. <laughs> and yeah, 463 games, but carry on. Yeah, so, um, yeah, see your point. So you wanted me to say 500, and you would have said, no, it's not that many. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't have been satisfied. Sorry? 400 was not accurate I'm never for satisfied. You. Well, that's... I'm like the footballing shark. I'm always pushing on. <laughs> so 463, so carry on. There's, so a, you, there's, you a, there's a T-shirt in that. There is. Thank yeah, you very yes. much indeed. <laughs> Tpublic.com. <laughs> Um, but but we, we celebrated the concept of your career, if not necessarily all the statistics of it, two trophies. Um, and we, we do that because we enjoy reflecting upon it ourselves as your friend, colleague. So if... Sure, if acquaintance. Yeah, yeah. If we're yeah. allowing ourselves to do that, yeah. did you, during your career, ever give yourself the opportunity to look at yourself in the mirror, move... Move why, why would I do that? <laughs> Move the mirror, and then... <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was look at myself in the mirror. Honestly, assess myself. There's no way I would have ever done that. But there is, there is at least an opportunity for you, because you weren't winning everything every year, but you would have been, during your career, given the opportunity to think, wow, that was good. Did you ever do that? Or no. were you discouraged from doing so, from the very no, no. kind of reasons no, of professionalism I, we're talking I, it's about? It's not in my... Because actually, it wasn't that good anyway. What I achieved, I don't think, in the scheme of things, people who, who haven't played the game to the very high level that I played, it would think <laughs> playing for England, not losing a game, winning major competitions like the charity Community Shield <laughs> is some achievement. But again, I, I never saw... We, 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 on this podcast, we talk so many times about how I feel maybe about myself and my career and how different it could have been. So again, my, my personality wasn't one to say... Well, if we did win, and when we did win, say the 95 Cup, it was, I was part of something. And that, that gave me a lot of joy. Not saying, well, I, scored, I didn't need to score. I didn't want to be that person. I never was. That wasn't my personality. No, but I've never really, truly reflected on it because I let other people do that. But you don't really enjoy it. You just take the mickey out of my career, really. Well, that, that's essentially... Which I really enjoy, which is, yeah. is how it should be, but because that's how I... That's how I see it. But it's not running it down and saying I didn't care, but I know I wasn't one to, because I, I just don't think that I achieved but, enough to, well, to, to look back with. It with depends any. on the context what you achieved. Like compared to Leonardo da Vinci, you're a bit of a letdown. <laughs> Possibly. Compared yeah, to yeah, yeah. literally everybody else in he this room. He didn't overlap as much as I did, so I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't, he wasn't bad with a paintbrush. Yeah, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But if, if, is that reflected in the majority of people involved in football because if we're, if we're asking football to be self-reflective yeah. you need the kind of people who are, who are able to contribute to that and if everybody's thinking no tunnel vision all I care about is doing this winning this game overlapping on the left hand side you, you will be in a position surely where you you draw a blank when you're 
Rory may be looking at a, mm -hmm. a newspaper from 100 years ago, that's okay, because there's been time to apply that context. But if you're trying to do it almost in real time, you're not going to get anywhere, and that's yeah. where, we, where we hit a bit but of a buffer. If we're talking about the modern thinking of, of any time you achieve anything, you put that to one side and you look forward, when did that thinking start to come in? Well, close in the 70s, isn't it? Would, would you say it goes, it goes back that far? That actually was football, the view of football, manager's view of football, player's view of the game, was it like that for the successful teams in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Were they thinking like that about tomorrow, about the future, even then? Does I, it, I, I thought it may be a modern a Premier League kind of phenomenon. Do, Are we going back? Did, did players act in that way back then? There's a, there's a street of dynastyism in football that I think doesn't apply in a lot of other sports. So in the, in the US... No, 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 no. Yeah. Let's hang on. The Atlanta Braves, who won the World Series, haven't won it since 1995. I'm hoping that he doesn't know as much about baseball as he does about American yeah, football, yeah. so we might be all right. Yeah. Fourth the time as the World Series no, winner. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's no good. But they, they sort of, it's inbuilt in American sport that you have like a, you build to win, and then there will be a, a the wave will crest, and then it will do whatever it does after that. It will fall. Because it's which designed to be like that. It's designed yes, to be exactly. built which into the system. Which is why the tribalism is diluted, because it is a story that everybody feels like that they want to have told mm. because they are celebrating their sport. Now, if the Kansas City Chiefs win, the teams that are in their division in, in the NFL won't necessarily enjoy them winning, but that doesn't take in everybody else hating them, which yeah. if you were to tell the football story of a season, you probably would. You get Manchester City fans buy into a Manchester City story of them winning the Premier League, but how many other, how many other fans would actually enjoy the telling of that story? They'd enjoy it up until the point their team becomes irrelevant, and for a lot of them, it will start being irrelevant. So that's, that's the conflict that you have. Well, yeah, and so the... But so in, in US sports, I think, I don't know what, it is, what it's like in cricket and rugby and stuff, but in US sports, certainly, there's not that idea that if you win once, but only once, you failed. Whereas yeah. here, I mean, it's the last two or three years, we've had bad champions, which was, I think, a concept that Roy Keane invented. But It's like what, one cap wonders as well, isn't it? It's seen as yeah. a huge criticism. You play for your, yeah. country, <laughs> you once, only play for your yeah. country once. once. Well, yeah. That's still pretty impressive, isn't it? Seven times. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> Mind-blowing. But I, I wonder how much that feeds into the way we think about football, that, that there is this idea that you, you have to... I don't know whether it comes from outside into football or whether it comes from football and is sort of diffused outside, but there is this idea that you have to justify winning by winning again, yeah. which I don't think exists in a lot of other sports. Well, to take the, the Atlanta Braves example, that ties in with the fact that that is one trophy to be won. That is the one objective they have. Whereas in football, for... Over a century, there has been at least dual objectives. And now, in most leagues across the world, you're talking about three or four trophies being available to you at the start of any one season. So how long do you dwell upon a single success when it's likely to be one of only three or four that you started out aiming for? And, and as we discussed with the end of last season, can be very quickly replaced by the next trophy claimed by either yourself or another team. So... There is no time to reflect. There is no time to stop. And even at the very end of the season, at most, you've got two months, which will probably be filled either by an international tournament or end-of-season friendlies, which yeah, you yeah, went yeah. on, or pre-season yeah. friendlies, which are more the fad now. So who is going to take responsibility for finding time in their schedule to dwell upon a one-off 
League Cup success because oh, we it, shouldn't be we shouldn't be reflecting on the League Cup. Oh, no one's, <laughs> no one's suggesting FA that. Cup success. <laughs> I mean, no, nobody's. Got, Why does it always turn back to me? Oh, that's fine. We like the FA, look FA Cup. Look and say it. Don't look at me and say you're one, one off FA, FA Cup. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very proud of my 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 success in 1995 with the FA Cup. But there are, the, the problem with football is that there are a lot of competitions but there are too many narratives and, that, and that's the point with, with American sport you tell the one narrative of that one winner of that one particular trophy in that sport but is there also a problem with the, the British the English personality as well because in America we talked before about American exceptionalism in talking about the Premier League's exceptionalism but we are more emotionally repressed in this country because a lot of the telling of our history is based on self-congratulation and America is very good at doing that. So they have a single narrative. They have the tub thumping. They want to tell their story. They want to congratulate themselves for a good a, a job well done. Football and England doesn't really work in that way. We don't think of ourselves as being, aren't we all great? This is all amazing. And let's talk about it for a while. I think it's different. I think England tells the stories of it, the story of individuals. This is in no way connected to the fact that I was sat in the Toronto Exchange writing this at two hours ago and therefore just want to have it fresh in my head. But... <laughs> England thinks about individuals. We, we have a, a culture defined by Roy Race. Roy Race invented English football. So we think about... It's like the great man theory of history, that games are defined by individual people, whereas in other countries, they kind of have realised for some time that it, there's like 11 people on each team, and therefore it's a team sport. So whereas we kind of have this kind of... Like Captain Fantastic, Robson, Gerard, Axis running through football. And if you, if you were to tell the story of English football, you could probably tell it through Billy Wright, Bobby Charlton, George Best, obviously not, not English, Robson, Gerard, Lampard, Terry. It's these big sort of defining characters. Whereas I think you, you, if you look abroad, there has been an attempt to tell a tactical history of the game. And that's the thing that we've, we've only just caught up with. And the other thing is, where well, the 90s come back into it, is that was the point where football intersected properly with culture. It always existed slightly apart from that as a, as a working class mm -hmm. endeavour that was looked down on. It was 1985 that it was a slum sport played, by, played in slum stadiums and watched by slum people. It was not taken seriously until probably 92, 93, just as Chinch was getting his first knee injury. And <laughs> they, they re that people realised that it didn't need to be held back anymore. And it was only then that we started to kind of literize it effectively but is there a responsibility as well because of that that particular period just prior to the 90s when football started being a little bit more glittery and and connected to the culture more fun more mainstream more associated with characters who everybody could celebrate or at least know about prior to that for 20 years the 70s and the 80s football had a particularly dark history and so actually is is that a problem too that in, tell, in the retelling of football's story, there's quite a lot that you have to reflect upon which isn't particularly pleasant, whereas you might have dark periods in other sports that don't take quite so much, don't dominate quite so much like they were in the, in the 70s and 80s. I hate it when he makes a good point. Really hate Move it. Move on, change the subject. Yeah. Should we talk about something else now? Yeah. yeah. So this back really to the annoying. NFL. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's right. Actually, the, that the, that dark side of football's history is probably overly well written. There's too much of that Hooli literature, and too much of that kind of Green Street. What's the other one? The other, Green Street Two. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that isn't that an example of what Hugh's talking about? Rather than celebrate the good stuff, if we're going to talk about football's pack, we'll, we'll talk about the horrible stuff. Mm. So again, is that is that why? But that's the class thing. That's just that's what that's what middle class people want to, of which I count myself as a member. Yeah. But that's what that's what the view was. That's the bit that people kind of identify football with. You don't get that about rugby. 
Do you? They, it's Why do you keep going on about rugby? They hate rugby. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> but you, it, that is that is what the bit of football that the broader culture kind of accepted was okay. hooliganism and and yeah disgrace and sh national shame, and it's maybe it's been hard for it to to kind of escape that. Yeah. I always think it's interesting when when like the rate that famous beloved footballers die is quite an interesting. I feel bad with the kids in the audience. Sorry, Katie. <laughs> the, they know people die, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, that big box in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't edit the news. <laughs> Titanic ends with them all getting to New York yeah. safely. The, um, <coughs> but if you think about like, more, it seems like more footballers from the 70s die now. Mm -hmm. Like they die at a greater, it's true of all pop they, culture they're getting, old, they're getting older? No, but there's more of them that we've heard of. If you think about players in the 50s, you very rarely, when we were younger, heard about famous players dying because the players hadn't been famous. Yes. It was only in the 60s with, with the Holy Trinity at Man United that you start getting players as celebrities. And that then through the 70s, you, you then have a whole generation where there's lots and lots of household names. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of them are dead, but people like Rodney Marsh or Frank Stapleton or whoever it might be, these aren't... Both alive, both, both alive. <laughs> was it Frank, did Frank Worthington die? Yes, recently. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Worthington wasn't like a significant footballer in any like, global sense. Yeah. He was a brilliant player. But he was massively famous because oh, yeah. footballers were big cultural figures. Mm -hmm. So by the time you die, which will never happen because we all love change, the, the, in, in 40 years' time... <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. Go on. The, um, that whole generation was really famous. So there'll be like one a day. And that shows how football's changed. <laughs> <laughs> you hope. <laughs> not, like, not one dying a day, but like one obituary a day yeah. for a figure who yeah. felt quite important. I know important. from that England team that I made my debut, and if I had to choose who would go first, <laughs> I know who I'd go for. Who was in that? <laughs> <laughs> and it would be a horrible, painful death. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be the Fergie in that situation? Remember the, the, the number of times we'd turn up at Carrington, and Fergie would either not be there because he was at a funeral, or he would be dressed ready to go to a funeral. <laughs> I feel sorry for whoever the patriarch football manager is of the era where there is like a constant stream of famous footballers whose funerals need to be attended. Mourinho's going to have to go to loads. <laughs> Managed everywhere, pretending to like most of them. He's going to be doing nothing but going to funerals and probably sneering and then criticising the players. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the pallbearers who weren't lined up yeah. exactly correctly. <laughs> Which, which leads us to our final point, which is, is, is about the kind of the tactical revolution that we've seen in, in recent football, which has been not only a revolution on the field, but one that we've become as watchers and perhaps as fans too more aware of, thanks to excellent punditry from people like Gary Neville and, and, and Jamie Carrigan. It's probably it at Sky. Uh, but there, there is now this, this tactical awakening, isn't there, to put into context what you wrote in your book, Rory, but also provides you, Chinch, with kind of extra ammunition to be able to do the job better. Mm -hmm. And perhaps are we now in this modern era, whether it's through the individuals that you mentioned, Rory, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo were able to think of being genuinely two of the best players that have ever played the game. So that necessitates a historical context. But also we are paying more attention to how the game is played, which takes us back to when those tactical evolutions happened in the first place. So are we now better at placing football in a historical context than we ever have been because we pay more attention to the things that are more than just everything that we've spoken about? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> Who invented the false nine? Sorry? Who invented the false nine? Are you asking me that I'm question? asking you that question. Who invented the false nine? Steve? It'll be some Italian fella that he met at the 
national team met. training. It's not someone I've met. I'm interested in false nines because Leandro Trossard played as a false nine yeah. at Brighton. Okay. Uh, for Brighton at Anfield the other day. Yeah. And in the, in the analysis afterwards, they explained, I, forget, I think it was Shearer and Wright, explained how he was a brilliant false nine and all they did was describe a striker. Yeah. False, nine, <laughs> false nine has come to, dis, come to mean winner playing up front, which yes. used to just be called a winner playing up front and yes. isn't a false nine. Mm -hmm. First false nine was Luciano Spalletti using, friend, using Totti at Roma. I have met Totti. The <laughs> oh, <God>. This whole <laughs> half an hour yeah, has been leading, one big journey. Up no, no, no. But we, that's not known. That's, people well, assume that, it's Messi at Barcelona, which is fine. Of course but it's, it's, not a, it's a wild generalisation to say, oh, do football fans, would they genuinely know that we did have tactics before Guardiola and Klopp and all the, the current... Tactics were around way back when. Are, are people fully aware that today's tactics came from previous managers and how they played? I'm a middle-aged man, so I can't say for certain. Are you? But I would say no. Mm. I would say that there is a, there's, a, there's a sense that Tanner tactics were invented in about 2004. Yeah. Just after you retired. <laughs> I wish I'd had tactics when I played. It would have been even worse. <laughs> <laughs> all, that thing, all that stuff you wouldn't have been doing correctly. I got even more wrong, basically, yeah. 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 So I'm glad it wasn't, yeah, 4-4-2, keep it like that. Don't complicate the game. But that, I, I do feel that we, we do, and I was, who was, the, who was the, I've forgotten his name, I should remember, it's my age. Who was it we came along, we did a podcast, and it was about ta the formations going back through, through the decades. And it was, do you remember, it was at your house, your, your previous house, before you oh, all, all the money San came Shetty. in and you moved. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, when, the, when I think Gemma started doing a few bob and you moved out. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you remember? You've probably forgotten that old place, haven't you? Um, who was that who came to chat to us? And it was, I, I was absolutely I've, enthralled. I've said his name, his name already. You, you, San Shetty. That's San, him. Sanji. Now, was, now writing tweets for the London Mayor, Do you know why I liked that, right? Yeah. I liked it because it had pictures. And it went back through, again, it's something I never, because I'd never been taught anything. Like, it was as if, yeah, it, 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 we, we basically came up with the ideas as we went along. And it, it didn't come from anywhere. So I had no idea about the history of it and where tactics and everything. So I just wonder whether the, the, the modern fan would. Well, it's, it's books like that and like Rory's that, that brought me to this conclusion, which apparently is incorrect, that we are better now at reflecting on what is happening currently and how it is related to the past. Because everything that football does, did, in the way that we've described it, it is that forward-moving sharp. That is something that I didn't expect to be talking about quite so often this evening. It's tautologies. You don't need to say forward-moving sharp. Just say sharp. Just a sharp. Just a sharp. By definition, they by move definition, forward. Forward-moving. Yeah. Is it a type of shark? Or all sharks. All sharks. Just all sharks. They just can't reverse. They don't no, no, I know that, but are we talking about the footballing shark being a specific type of shark? Or hammerhead. <laughs> so it'll be a hammerhead, yeah. will it? Really? Probably. Well, what are you thinking? Well, I'd naturally go for the Great White, wouldn't I? Or Nurse Shark. Um, <laughs> Natural choice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The nurse shark. I knew you were going to say hammerhead. Why? I, I just knew you were, because you're that kind of person that would say <laughs> hammerhead shark for the football. I know, you're I a hammerhead it. shark guy, Rory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, what is a nurse shark? <laughs> What's a nurse shark? Yeah. Obviously, it's a type of shark. You are a sad, strange little man. <laughs> you do not know. Everybody knows a nurse shark, don't we? We all know the nurse shark. Yes. <laughs> the nurse shark. I feel, I feel, like, I feel yeah. like, A, I've lost control, B, the caffeine has clearly run out, and C, it's time to move on. I mentioned that the four floors of hot historical content here at the National Football Museum are glorious things, but even with all the incredible items that they have here at their collection, it could still 
be improved. With that in mind, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. Mm. What a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells the tale from his playable broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed. So how many, how many soccer stories do you think we've, or I've, put out there? Would you, just a rough, a rough estimate? Is this, is this going to be like with, your, with the number of games you've played, if we, if we did it exactly, if we did it wrong? If I was still doing the podcast, when I did my 463rd soccer story, shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> so my soccer stories, I think to be, uh, you probably all agree, have made you laugh, they've made you cry. They're, they're the reason, I know we get all this tangential bollocks that you can talk, sorry, and love VAR, hate VAR, and blowing his bloody trumpet. When, when I said they'd heard some bad words Not, around the house, it yeah. didn't mean that you needed to go straight in for a sentence. Yeah, but you told me the kind of stuff Katie comes, oh sorry Katie. <laughs> <laughs> When you have the arguments... Yeah, but that's normally shouted from... About the wi That's from shouted upstairs. Anyway, They're not the expecting it right here. in We're front of We're talking about nurse sharks okay. again. So, yeah, we've done so many. I know you, you, you don't have to tell me. I know you enjoy them so much. Um, but what I wanted to do, with there being a, a live show, I thought it nice to be to have a, a soccer story that involves everybody. Not, not you lot, the, 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 the real fans of the, of the pod. So, a, a, a soccer story that's kind of here and now. And with being at the museum and having a wander around the museum, they've got some, you know, there's some decent pictures and they've got some decent artifacts of the history of our, our wonderful game. But I, I couldn't help feeling there was a, a massive chasm, a footballing void, mm. as it were. Mm. There was something missing, mm. just something inherently. I thought, that, what, what is it that could have been around from 87 to 2002 that really did have such a huge impact on the game we all love. And I, I hate blowing my own hunting horn, but it, it was my... I just, where, where, where is my presence in this museum? As you're saying, about, I should look back with a bit more pride, and a bit more understanding about the impact that I have. And yes. I've done that, mm. and I came to the conclusion, I'm not fully appreciated. So <laughs> the museum, the museum, I know they're a little bit nervous when they get superstars in the build. They're not going to ask for stuff, are they? They're not going to say, Chinch, give us a pair of your match-worn undercrackers, are they? They're going to... So I thought it's up to me to, to step forward and offer the museum something which I, I, I just can't see, or a couple of things. I can't see how they, they turn down. So these, I would... I'd like to say they'd been in my office, taking pride of place, but they've been in the loft <laughs> for about 15 years. But rather than be, be in the loft, I thought it would be, I think it's right, that this, these type of memorabilia should be on the walls of the National Museum. I think people walking past this, it would, something would stir in them. Um, They'd probably think, how the hell did he wear number 11 for it? <laughs> Is that what it is, obviously? No, how did he wear any number for England? But, so what I'd like to do, I don't know whether Hugh is... Well, would you, you like, to, like to explain what these well, shirts yes, are? Well, yes, this is, this is obviously the match-worn so shirt. For the, for the audio listeners. For the audio listeners, this is my match-worn Everton shirt from the 1995 FA Cup final. We have the 53 Matthews final, the 95 final is the Chinch final. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it is. Uh, and this is my, um, again, match-worn England debut shirt with a bit, of a bit of a stain on the front here. I think that could be mustard from the hot dog I probably celebrated <laughs> the 3-0 win with. So a couple of shirts there. And I, again, the museum would never ask me for this. They'd, they'd be too embarrassed. So I felt, I said to Hugh, this is what's going to... Have you, 
you've lined up somebody from the museum who can well, maybe come and accept these and put them on. Into Sam, the would you like to like to come to the front uh, for us? Sam, just, please, um, no, Sam, please come forward because I, I know. I imagine there needs to be a don't negotiation. Don't be in awe. Don't be in awe. You'll be fine. Come over here. I'm just a man. <laughs> <laughs> if you're asking me, you know, as, as some. Do I, do I like the object? Do I appreciate learning what they historically significant? Yeah. The answer is yes. So yeah, of course, of course. If, you put me on the spot. If, if I'm speaking on behalf of the museum, yeah. we do tend to prioritise players of eight caps or more. Go <laughs> 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 on. Will it make any difference? Okay, seven caps. I understand the criteria, but no defeats. <laughs> you might have a lot of eight-cap wonders out there, but I bet they've lost a couple of games. So does that not maybe sway? Yeah, no, I, I could put it to the board. I think, I think it'd be under consideration. But uh, if I was to give you an answer now, I'm being honest about it. We, prob we, could, we could maybe find space in the cafe. <laughs> what, as a table? <laughs> So, the National Football Museum is turning down the offer of these incredibly relevant cultural items. Regrettably, yeah, yes. Has Guppy been on to you? <laughs> has someone had a word? Has someone had a word with you? Because you must, this is incredible, isn't it? How I can offer these to you and yet you, you don't want to accept them. Strange, actually, there is a big Barry Horn exhibition upstairs. <laughs> Is there a big Barry Horn exhibition? Is there, is there a big Barry Horn well, exhibition? Can I, can I, well, how many, how many caps did Barry Horn win for Wales? Yeah, but that doesn't count. It does, because it's eight or more. Sam, thank you very much indeed no, for no, giving, giving the right much. answer. Why are you thanking and him? And then sit down. <laughs> sit down. <laughs> the kids weren't here. You'd be hearing some really foul language from me right now. <laughs> It is, outrageous. At, it is at this point uh, that uh, we will take an interval. Uh, Chinch, sit down. It's, Sorry. It's a no. It's a no. Will you thank, please, our panel? We'll be back in just 10 minutes' time. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Some hollers and as well, eh? Excellent. Some of that sounded slightly sarcastic. Yeah. yeah. Might have been too much. Mm. Thank you. That felt really natural. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so we have um, about just what, what change? Why, why have they not been stolen? <laughs> <laughs> they don't even have an the eBay value. The museum don't want them. They've got a guppy. I left them there thinking <laughs> well, they're bound back. to go, aren't they? It's not the Bermuda Triangle, Chinch. What's the point? Chinch, genuinely, if they're going to go in your loft, I'll take one. No. Right, you see? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, uh, we, we're going to have uh, a little Q&A for about, what, 20, 25 minutes, and then we're going to let you off into the night and, and enjoy your rest of your Manchester evening. So somebody's going to have to, because this is genuinely our second half, so somebody's going to have to ask something. Thank you very much indeed. Sam, a hero see? emerges. Thank you. Um, now, also remember that you will be broadcasting as you ask this question, so, you know, Don't do your vocal warm-ups, get ready, and hold the microphone Very nice and close so that we can all hear you. Sir, would you like to stand up, introduce yourself, and ask the question? Thank you. Uh, hello, I'm Jack. Um, first of all, who does Rory think should win sports personality of the year? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I mean, it's an easy it's one. Just, it's an easy one. There's just been so many qualifiers this year. There's no, there hasn't. The Olympics, there's been the Euros, no. there's probably some tennis. Yeah, that's the tennis. Yeah. It's that, that's it. Oh, there's, there's your yeah, Radhikanu. I'm sure she, that's what she was, as she was sort of 
you know, inching closer to match point. She was thinking, do you know what, I've got to really crack at, at Spotty this year. <laughs> that was her main inspiration, I think, when you knew us And um, I went to Villa Park on Sunday, which was a very grim experience. Um, are home fans more windy now than they used to be back in the day? Or is this something that I've missed? Because they seem very windy now, home fans in general. Wingy fans. It's always nice to talk about wingy fans. Well, just, just, can, we, can, we just not, can we not do this one? Does that, it's actually a really good podcast and we're quite short on content. <laughs> <laughs> we just, well, we just, he can edit it out. This yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't Rory saying no swears was basically he doesn't want to have to edit anything. Right, okay. So if we swear a lot, does that mean he, we won't use this bit? Yeah. But why has that changed? Because when Villa came up, they had a Friday night game against Everton. And I was at that game. And that was the happiest I've seen a football crowd Ever. There, was gen there was genuine enthusiasm amongst the people there. And on the way down from the gantry after the game, they weren't. Villa won 2 0, and, and th they were celebrating in a joyous way, which you don't see at football very much. Generally, the celebrations are sort of like antagonistic, mm. as though you're more pleased that your opponents have lost than won. So, what's changed at at Villa in the last two years that's you, led to that. You mean the people who, and you see them after every goal is scored, that the majority of the crowd goes up and celebrates. Yeah. And there's always a section of the crowd that turns to the away fans and goes yes. like that. Yeah. And it, that is, I, I find that such a weird instinctive reaction because your, your joy should be pure. I think, I think there is a, there's something in that. I think home fans are quicker to turn now. There's always been certain grounds that are bad for it. Jordison Park is terrible. Jordison Park, if they're not winning within about 15 minutes, they boo. The, the old... Sorry, did I do that in the 90s, I know they? you're an Everton fan, Chin. did that a lot in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this left back? They had a lot yeah, of reason yeah. to, though, Chin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was 4 minutes 28. Yeah. 4 minutes 28. What was, says, the, uh, what was the score? Nil, nil. Oh, <laughs> right. What was the subject of the complaint? Was it just... <laughs> that they it hadn't scored They yet. hadn't scored or just... Yeah, that is unforgivable. You need to remember, panelists, that Zach doesn't have a microphone mm. anymore, so uh, probably yeah, no, trying shout. to conduct a conversation might not be the most just rewarding. Shout. No, but he's thinking for his edit on the tape. Yes, remember that. Remember he's thinking that. of himself, isn't he? As the That's talent, yes. do we have to think? Do we have to ask whether we care about that? Probably no, we not. Don't. No, we That's don't. a production yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah, We're four yeah, minutes yeah. and twenty-eight <laughs> minutes seconds into this section, <laughs> and I'm already booing you. I think the point that you make is is right because there is there is a sense. I think, generally speaking, with football fans, that they would rather protect themselves against any, any possible feelings of, my football team isn't very good, so they will manifest that in immediately sending it outwards and finding a scapegoat. I wonder if this is, this is, this is proper old man shouts at cloud stuff, but I do wonder whether it's to do with, we, we are a bit less tolerant of not getting what we want in every sphere of our lives, and as soon as it doesn't happen, that we, we are quicker to kick off, and that's probably true. But the other thing I'd guess that, if you've been kinder, is you're paying for, an ent for entertainment, so, and you're paying a lot of money for entertainment, so if you don't feel like you're getting entertained, I mean, I don't go to the theatre because it's rubbish, but if, <laughs> if you go to the theatre and they're, they're not good at acting, yeah. do you boo? Probably. I yeah. boo immediately upon arrival. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. Four and a half minutes in. <laughs> boo, out, off. boo outside at the concert. This overture is <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I, think, I, I think that's probably right. I think everyone is quicker to... I'm sure you can probably blame social media as well. That you, everyone is quicker to, to allow their discontent to manifest. Is this anything to do with not being able to attend games and then being able to... They expect more coming back. They've missed it so much, you come back. You expect it to be better? Do you go to, do you go to Villa Park a lot? Zach says yes. 
Thank you. Jack. Jack, sorry. Jack oh, says yes. Well, that's my fault. Yeah, that's your fault. I thought me. No, it was your fault for not <laughs> making it clear on the microphone technique. Come on. You're broadcasting now, Jack. <laughs> Have you found, has that like, initial buzz of being back after the pandemic, has that worn off? I think that's what happens when you have four defeats in a row. All of a sudden, people... <laughs> oh, yeah, this is rubbish. Why do we do this? Yeah. yeah. So it's all very exciting when you first started going there, and now you've started not... Oh. Yeah, that got much there we go. Mm. He's been engaging enough to get the microphone back. Thank you. <laughs> this is what you can all live the up standard to. Has been, yes. The standard has been yeah. set, hasn't it? Or, or somebody who asks the next question will be like, no, don't take it away from <laughs> me. I've got, I've got follow-up <laughs> points. Um, no, I just think once you... I think downturns in form are much quicker pounced upon now than they used to be. I think you could probably get away with four defeats in a row. And now all of a sudden people are wanting Dean Smith out. After that's mental, though, isn't it? It's mental. I agree. I think it's but, you, but you look at the, the reaction to Eddie Howe potentially getting the, the Newcastle job. Now, I, I think Eddie Howe's sort of flawed as a manager, but it is, it is baffling that he is regarded as the man who got Bournemouth relegated and not the man who got Bournemouth from League Two to the Premier League. That is, that is, that is nuts that we've kind of decontextualised that completely. But maybe it's just the recency thing that... that fans, or as a football culture, we kind of see the thing that happened like a couple of weeks ago and anything beyond that, we've forgotten. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also partly, I would imagine, relative. If you see other teams being 3-0 up after 20 minutes, even if it's Manchester City or Liverpool or whatever, you think, well, why isn't that happening to me? It's unfair. Yeah, that but this has always been happening, so why is it now? Is it... It's the youth. It's the youth, Andrew. Well, but with social media and everything and the immediacy, and you can, your voice can be heard. But it's also so the screeching hyperbole of all football coverage. Mm. That it's it, that everything... Like, when you were playing, if you had a bad game, which I know is, is very anathema... Rare, very rare, But yeah. you, would, you might have got a bit of criticism, but it wouldn't have been... This. Whereas now it's, you know, five things we learned about... I'm trying to think who were, who's Everton... After, about Leighton Baines' dreadful performance and Baines in outrage, shock or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Everything's so sort of... Everything's so pitched up. Sensationalised. Sensationalised. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That it feels like. Do you, it, are you, no, you? Do you write for a living? Or no. <laughs> I was. Chinch. I was just. I was. How can I be giving you words? Chinch, I was think. I was. I was thinking about in the no, right I'm words. I'm never going to wear your football boots, am I? It's going to play well. Come on. The um. But that, yeah, I, I do wonder whether it's all at such a pitch now that that it feels much more like immediate and everyone is just on the cusp of anger so much more. So the Villa situation is Andy Hinchcliffe and Sky Sports' fault, just to put that on the record. Mm. Thank you. And also, um, by the time this is broadcast, Villa could have lost five in a row because I'll be at Southampton when they probably no, will lose their, their fifth consecutive game. I think they'll win at Southampton. Do you? Yeah. Southampton are awful, aren't Southampton they? Southampton are awful. absolutely who dreadful. Support, who in Can't their right mind support Southampton? How, how where, where is Southampton? Let's move on <laughs> to the next... <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. Is it now <laughs> Sam? Oh, okay. Uh, who, who would like to ask the next question and please move us on very quickly? Uh, oh, that's, that's handy. Is the microphone still nearby? Thank you very much indeed. So if you'd like to stand up, announce yourself, and hold on to the microphone for your dear life afterwards. Hi, everyone. My name's John. Um, first point, I'd like to say I appreciate using the kids to push the merchandise. That's uh, very ultra-capitalist <laughs> <laughs> ultra of you. Um, <laughs> I've invested in them, they can now invest in us. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so the second thing, I'll caveat this question um, by my, uh, my fandom, as you can tell my accent, I'm a Sunderland fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I Get an extra chair. 
And uh, it was um, kind of following on from the uh, discussion, you were talking about um, football history and stuff. And I watched the, um, the Premier League documentary. Um, and I just wanted to say, uh, you were talking about maybe nowadays we're better at uh, chronicling history of football. And, you know, as a Liverpool fan, I felt that was more of a uh, sort of story of the, the class of 92. And is it possible to tell a history of the Premier League without a slant of this club or that club? Because I found the start of that first episode quite interesting, talking about, you know, how it's considered a Super League and parallels with recently and stuff. And then it drifted off into the just, oh, it's my night to win the league or Blackburn win the league. And right. So is it possible to tell the history of the Premier League without doing it from the slant of a particular football club? Just, yeah. There'd be a really, do you know, I talked to someone about this today, there'd be a really interesting, the thing I, the problem I had, I had with that BBC documentary was that it was all very much like football was bad and then the capitalists arrived and saved it. Mm. And isn't it brilliant that all these really rich people came in and started charging us 50 quid a ticket? It was very kind of, the money's great, it solved all the problems. There is a totally different history of the Premier League, which is that it is this great monument to Thatcherism and that everything that has that we have in English football now is a result of deregulation of the 80s. And that's why we now have a nation state that's definitely not a nation state. Definitely not. It's <laughs> an investment fund which just happens to it be... It takes here. its money exactly. from the nation state. But the Mohammed bin Salman, who, who is in charge of the fund, and is different to the Mohammed bin Salman who murders journalists. Yes. They are different people. Two different people. And they don't even, you know, they don't look, they don't look alike. But that is all, there is a, there is a fascinating storyline to be told of how the, the Premier League was formed and forged, I guess, in that, in, in that kind of spirit of the 80s. If you look at a lot of the dominant figures, they're these ultra-capitalist, like, free marketeers. It's Irving Stroller and um, who's the apprentice guy? Alan Sugar. Alan Sugar, not Trump. He wasn't involved. <laughs> But they, Although he did try, he did try he something did, similar in the States, didn't he? he um, but the, it is this kind of massive rush to the market, and that's what leads us to where we are now. Football is this, Premier League is this massive, probably the best example of pure, unfettered free market capitalism in the world. There is, there is also an element to, to what John was talking about, which is that you cannot really tell that story because where is bias? Bias is in the, the beholder of that bias. So if you've got... If you've got an audience who has inherent biases, you're ne never going to be able to watch that program without thinking about that product telling a story which doesn't but, quite chime with your own world. But maybe view. that's what we were talking about before, that you, there's lots of histories of clubs. There's loads of histories of clubs, but there's, there's not, it's much harder for people to put that together into a, like a coherent whole. So I didn't, I didn't watch the rest of that documentary. Did, did it go like full Premier League years? It went from like, here comes the money, and then Westlife were top of the charts, but Blackburn <laughs> were struggling against relegation. <laughs> but it, 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 just what it, 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 we, we also sort of kind of getting, bearing in mind where your loyalty lies, that we shouldn't just look at the Premier League era as a hard start, that there should be a rolling start. We should accept what came just before it and embrace that. Because I, I think that's quite a good point. Mm. You can't just say like, I, I don't, we've talked about this recently, I don't object to there being a line in the sand and a new era having started in the early 90s because it helps break things up a little bit. But we should also have a rolling start because somebody, to, to, to be nice to you for once. Really? Seeing as you've had a hard time tonight. Somebody hard, sent us a message very, very recently which had the Premier League defenders assists on oh, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And it was written with a Liverpool bias about um, Robertson and Alexander-Arnold. Alexander very, very soon being at the top of that list. But you were slap bang in the middle of it. 
Which is a pretty decent achievement, bearing in mind that you... Well, no, because you... <laughs> you have bang in the middle it of wasn't, the... It wasn't of all defenders in history. It was only like seven You weren't like 653rd. You were... <laughs> True, okay. It was like the Steve, top yeah. ten, and you were in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. Even though the first five years of your career were before the Premier League. There you go, then. So yeah. that's why we should have a rolling start into it. Thanks, Steve. Chinch is a good yeah. example of that. Well, I am. Chinch. I'm a good example of many things. <laughs> Thank you very well, much indeed for the question. Do we have uh, a further question from anybody? Um, I want to ask about because you. What's your name, sir? What's oh, your name, Chris? Sorry. Hi, Chris. Chris, hello. Um, you've spoken before about the sport media ecosystem, like a multi-part pod. I was wondering what you thought if it was removed from the sport media ecosystem would have the greatest net positive on its like general worth and happiness. So if we were to remove football from yeah, its be, media yeah, coverage. No, as in which part of the current sport media landscape oh, okay. do, do you think has the greatest almost like horrible impact if it was taken out would make I'd definitely leave the co commentators in. Yeah, um, definitely leave them in. And the comment, and but you'll need if you're a co-commentator, you would need, need a commentator. Commentator, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be so difficult for you to be a co if there wasn't the commentator. Some, some, somebody's going to have to yeah. anchor, wrap around the coverage because we yeah. can't rely on you two being in front of the camera. So Alex Scott, Alex Scott's going to okay. be. Alex Scott okay, can do yeah. that. Yeah, oh that's my fine. god, Mind you, Steve. So it's you actually, not no, no. the sniping hackery of the journalists <laughs> yeah. that you need to worry. But, about. To be fair, you two are completely relevant as well. Does Steve broadcasts? on his own for about seven hours the other day from Augsburg or somewhere. Yes. We've lost those rights. We've, we've lost the German rights. Oh, so was, it, was it Verona? He was Italian. Yeah. Verona, yeah. Mm. Uh, is, this isn't the answer. But if, do you not think it's weird that we now live in like the football world according to Gary Neville? <laughs> like, I doubt that he's, like, when he came along, he was quite good at pointing out like, blocking patterns at corners. But now he appears to be <laughs> the voice of the left wing. And... <laughs> And also simultaneously demanding football governance reform and refusing to criticise the manager of Manchester United because he's his mate. And it is like Are you saying the answer to this question is Monday no, no, night no. football? No, I, I'm saying it might be Gary Neville. But <laughs> the, the, it, is like, it is amazing how like every word that Gary is like, it, this must be what it, was, what it was like to be around when Jesus was about. Like it's every word that, that Gary Neville says. He's like, oh, Gary Neville said this. Where's his? And football? Jesus wasn't on Twitter, so he no, can, Jesus, he'd, he'd get been, his message out a lot quicker. He'd have, he'd have got a lot of. So angles Jesus was across the blocking tactics, uh, attacking corners. I think. I think the pro one of the problems with Jesus was that he simultaneously wanted reform, yeah. but actually owned a club which he was he was getting ah. a lot of benefits from. So yeah. he only Conflict wanted the, he there. only wanted the reforms that benefited yeah, him. Yeah, I see what you're, you're saying see. there. Yeah, Gary <laughs> Neville's really good, but it's it's a failure <laughs> of the media that he gets to be. Like to pronounce on everything all of the time. That's that's wrong. It's like when they do journalists who are good at getting news stories columns, and you get this sort of drivel that they write, and you think that's because your opinions are terrible. Get back out and report stuff. I don't need your opinions. But yeah, Gary Neville is Gary Neville's overreach might be mine. If um, um, if that was the answer you're looking for, then uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, if it was a, a full pod, perhaps we'd uh, develop that. But let's that just stick a, with Gary it's Neville. A, it's a good subject, that as well. All oh, right, okay. I hope you're making a note of this because I'm well, very no, much focused on the pod we're it'll doing. It'll be on the We're recording it. You'll hear it when you're ready to I'll be the only one who hears it twice. Um, so we have, uh, I think, somebody at the back. Did you have your hand up, sir? Thank you very much indeed. Hello, I'm Alfie. Uh, thanks for the podcast. I love it, really love it. 
Yeah, my question is about like the future, the history of football. I really enjoyed Rory's latest piece in the New York Times about like the narrative of like Wrexham and that kind of thing. Are we in danger? Can afford the subscription? Yeah, well, I don't subscribe, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Are we in danger of like the history being controlled by the clubs now? Because they're they're so desperate for the narrative to be how they tell it, and like the broadcast, the print media seem quite happy with that. We've taken the clubs on. Are we in danger of the history being written by the clubs now? This is what we were just talking about. Yeah. In the green room. Is it a green room? There's, there's some green in there. Yeah. The hula hoops. The hula hoops. Oh, the yeah. hula hoops. Yeah, yeah. But it's what we were talking about again. Yeah. How the, the the big clubs want to control. Or, or seem you're in charge of, of the broadcast media to get to be to kind of be to pass to disseminate all the information that they want out there. So is it hard to be independent and actually hold people to account these days, or can you get drawn along? Not saying you do. No, no well, no. I, th but I think it is. Yeah, it's a, I think that is a massive problem, to be honest. And the, I mean, the the, the athletics the best example of it, but it's not. I, I don't want to slag the athletic off because I might need a job at some oh, point. Go on, go on, slag him off. The, well, do, you, like, do you pay for that, or do you manage to... No, no, no you don't pay for that either, right, okay. The, um, Did you pay for this? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, people paid for this? Yeah. Oh, to, see, to see your shirts, Jim. Unbelievable. The, um, but like their whole model is that you have a, have a journalist assigned to a club, and that journalist has to drive subscriptions, presumably amongst fans of that club, which incentivizes the journalist only writing positive pieces because no fan is going to subscribe to a site that slides off their club. It's not going to happen. And the, the local papers, which were always for a long time like a really important barrier, maybe not for United and Liverpool and Arsenal, but certainly for the clubs even just to run below that, like the local papers would hold them to account. And if they were, if they were making bad decisions, if they were doing things stupidly, whatever, the local papers would be there. But they follow the same trend. So now increasingly local papers have to not produce propaganda, but they have to kind of tailor what they, what they write about the clubs because the clubs don't threaten them with cutting off the access. Yeah. And that, that isn't great. Just purely journalistically, that's... I get, I get the athletic model, I understand why they do it, but journalistically, that's not brilliant. We should have uh, probably referenced this in, in our initial debate, which is probably why the host should actually do a little bit more research so that he could include these things. But the, the clubs are actually very good at doing that because they have a vested interest in telling a story which is like the American model, self-congratulatory. When, when the radio station I work for here in Manchester signed a commentary deal with Manchester United, it, as part of the contract, it was made very clear to us that everything that we did on air, even though it was on our radio station and we had generated it, everything we did on air relating to Manchester United remained their intellectual property. So they had access to it. They could stop us from, in perpetuity, using goal commentaries, interviews with Sir Alex Ferguson with players, because they said that part of this contract was that they controlled, they didn't control what we put out, but they controlled it thereafter. And so they are very, very, even, you know, that was 15 years ago nearly. So that was, that was something that they were very aware of back then. I suppose they have a a television station that they need to think about curating for as well. But yeah, perhaps the clubs are the best people at, uh, at doing it. So I think we have time for maybe one more question. Do we have it? It's here at the front. Thank you very much indeed. I'm glad four arms didn't go up then. I would have felt very bad. Um, come on, Sam. <laughs> Don't kick over the shirts. They're worthless to you, Sam. but not to him. Sam, now you've had time to think of Sam. <laughs> now you've had time to think about it. Just mull it over. Are you any more interested in these shirts? Chips, chips, this, is very, this is very undignified. 
I, I can't emphasise enough that I, I genuinely don't have the authority to make the call. <laughs> Passing the buck, that's good. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pass that over to a, a colleague. Above my, above my well, you, you will send them an email. <laughs> you will mention. Do you want to take, take some, we'll do it all later. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it later. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Come on, Sam, stop stealing his limelight. I'll, I'll take one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which one would you take, though? It's a tough choice, isn't it? England, probably. <laughs> yeah, England. England yeah, 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 yeah. I was just wondering, and this is a sort of question to all of you as individuals, actually. Do any of you have a sort of football sliding doors moment, by which I mean a sort of in, uh, event or decision made by an individual that could have sent everything spiralling in a different direction? Yes. Oh, go first then. Go on and change. This, this will be something of consequence. Ours won't be. Yeah. <laughs> My first wife divorcing me was a bit of a sliding doors moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, to be fair, I didn't open the door. Um, <laughs> but it, during my career, I remember waking up. I remember I've told this story about being given my cruciate ligament in a jar. Yes, yeah. When I was 27 years old, I think at that point, I realized with having a wife, which eventually... I ditched, of course I did, um, and children, it, it made me realise what I needed to do to make sure I played for maybe another four, five, six years. So I do remember waking up from that thinking this could be the end, or it's got to be kind of a, a, a second start, if you know what I mean. And I do being absolutely terrified when someone says, that basically that's your career in a, in a jar. Do so you, would what, the museum, what are you going to do? Are you going to recover or are you going to... Would the museum take that? <laughs> What? Would they take your cruise yet? If, it's, if you still got it? Uh, no, I fried it off and it was very nice. It's the umbilical cord. They do it with the umbilical cord. Can't you fry yeah. it off and have that with a bit of Chianti? It was delicious. But again, I was kind of eating my own career, which again, I should have done. But again, that was the point for me when I thought, hang on a minute, this could end. This, this is ending now unless I do something. So then, obviously, with having the character and, and fortitude that I have, I... I Bounced back and was, was brilliant for a further four or five years. <laughs> Steve? I don't think I can match that chinch. Um, I, th I think professionally it was leaving my job at the BBC to, to go freelance and have the opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do, and that's commentate on football on, on television, and I'm very blessed to be able to do that. I even get yeah. to do it with chinch sometimes. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's those, those moments where you have to take from a broadcasting point of view, take a bit of a gamble, back yourself, and, and hope it comes off, and, and mercifully, it, it has done. Mm -hmm. Rory? Uh, discovering that my editor, my editor at The Telegraph was the world's worst person, <laughs> and <laughs> being driven for 12 years by sheer, unrelenting, naked hatred of him, that is my, that is what drives me every day. Every day I wake still, up, and I think I really hate him. And that makes me think, I better do something today. I better, I better do something good so that he sits somewhere in his ivory palace as he's failed upwards, as that's what you do in the media when you get to management. <laughs> you're useless, and then because you're useless to stop you doing any more damage, they pay you more and give you a better job. And that's what we're all aiming for. And, uh, and yeah, that's, so no, it, leaving the Telegraph, because he was a prick. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Sorry, kids. Uncle Rory's not, right. not, not like that normally. Not they've, they've normally heard that by the yeah. end of breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Katie says that all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's just preempted with that. Yeah. 
Uh, I don't feel like I can follow that, but, uh, but very briefly, uh, I moved to Manchester to cover the Commonwealth Games, and at the end of that period, there was a job going at the radio station that I mentioned before, and I wasn't going to go for it because I was scared to move to a new place and uh, to name drop clangingly uh, Dan Walker, who was my boss at the time, said, you should apply for this. And one thing that you do learn, whenever anybody says you should apply for this, you really don't need to apply for it. So that was very helpful, and I've, uh, I've not left. It's a little known fact about Hugh, actually, that he, he should have been the next Dan Walker. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, it's all, but he can't dance. It's all stalled a bit, so now Dan's on Strictly, yeah. And, yeah. and Hugh's yeah. not. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to all of you for your questions. We do have one final question, um, and it comes on an email from a listener called Paul Knight. And he says this. Hello, Hugh, Rory, Steve, and Andy. Lee Child was the featured guest earlier this month in the London Times weekly feature, My Culture Fix. In the section, The Book I'm Ashamed I Haven't Read, his answer was Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. In fact, I haven't read any Austen, he said. Given that Jack Reacher's macho obviousness and his associated prose couldn't be further away from the delights of Ms. Austen's humor and tales of temporarily unrequited love, this probably doesn't come as much of a surprise. However, it did make me think of Chinch, his out-of-context Reacher performances, and a possible new feature, out-of-context Austen. Read by Chinch, but still done in the style of Reacher. <laughs> Jane Austen. It may well inspire Punching Lee Child to read the originals, as I'm sure he's an avid listener to your podcast, like the rest of us. Good All the best. Fun. Paul Knight's Woodlesford near Leeds. Um, so Where? I immediately think, Woodlesford, that you would know that. Nope. Can't be one of the nice bits. <laughs> yes, exactly. Less leafy area <laughs> of You can't Leeds. walk a dog there, he doesn't know it. Uh, so, in a bonus feature, the future success of which will be determined by the reaction to its inaugural edition from our live audience, who can give immediate feedback, here is Andy Hinchcliffe presents Out of Context Austin. I'm not sure about this at all. <laughs> because when Jane Austen was, was penning this literary masterpiece, do you feel that when she'd croaked it, that... <laughs> that <laughs> Do you have TB? Is TB that saw her off? Anyway, beside the point. When, did she, when do you think she died? When would she have died? How long ago would she have died? Why, why, why have you, you started, doing, why have you started doing trivia? We don't know any games. <laughs> no, 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 what a, would she be happy? What's a nurse shark? How many games no, 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 did I no, play? No. Would she be happy? Like a pub quiz element. Would she be happy with a seven-cap wonder reading her work? And to be fair, I have to abridge it because... I can't understand a lot of it, to be honest. It's very confusing. I'm going to have to put my glasses on here because I can't read it because the writing's so small. Um, am I allowed to abridge it in some way? Please abridge it. Would you like to explain um, the part of the book this is for all those people in the audience who know Pride and Prejudice? It's um, page 154. <laughs> <laughs> and it's of, of a lot of pages. And you did give me a slight heads up on this. So I have managed to print it out. It's slightly bigger so I can actually read it. And there are, there's going to be three voices in this. And as you are you doing aware, them all? Unless you want to join in, I think no, it's going to have to be down to me. And the problem I have, I, I'm, I'm okay, I think, with the vaguely American voice. Um, <laughs> Famously there's going to be a, There's going to be a, a Yorkshire voice okay. thrown in, and I'm going to, do my, going to do my best impression of Mick McCarthy on that one. Um, do you want to go Alan Bennett? That's my, that's my go-to Yorkshire voice. 
I originally was going to do, Mr. Darcy, as Alan Bennett, but Nikki said, you can't, it just doesn't work. So Mick McCarthy, I think, is a lot better. Um, he would be Mr. Darcy, wouldn't he? You know, he wouldn't talk about. Sorry, kids. Um, so, yeah, but with the, the, the woman, Elizabeth, is, I have a real problem with. Elizabeth Bennett. I, yeah, I, yeah, I do, I can do voices, but women are so... She turns into a bit of a southern belle, as you'll hear as we go along. It doesn't, doesn't really work. Where were they from? Howarth, was it? Howarth? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't really work. Anyway, here we go. You ready? No. This is going to be awful. She was suddenly roused by the sound of the doorbell, and her spirits were a, li were a little fluttered by the idea of its being Colonel Fitzwilliam himself. But this idea was soon banished, and her spirits were very differently affected when, to her utter amazement, she saw Mr. Darcy walk into the room. In a hurried manner, he immediately began an inquiry after her health, imputing his visit to a wish of hearing that she were better. She answered him with cold civility. He sat down for a few moments, and then getting up, walked about the room. Elizabeth was surprised, but said not a word. <laughs> Is this American or Cornish? <laughs> Sorry? Is this American or Cornish? <laughs> the pirate take your, by take your pick. After a silence of several minutes, he came towards her in an agitated manner, and thus began... Nick McCarthy. <laughs> In vain have I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Classic. Elizabeth's astonishment was beyond expression. She stared, coloured, doubted and was silent. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> this he considered sufficient encouragement, and the avowal of all that he felt and had long felt for her immediately followed. He spoke well, but there were feelings beside those of the heart to be detailed, and he was not more eloquent on the subject of tenderness than of pride. His sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation of the family obstacles which judgment had always opposed to inclination, were dwelt on with a warmth which seemed due to the consequence he was wounding, but was very unlikely to recommend his suit. That is a long what sentence. <laughs> Austin, what are you doing? In spite of her deeply rooted dislike, she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affection, and though her intentions did not vary for an instant, she was at first sorry for the pain he was to receive. Till, roused to resentment by his subsequent language, she lost all compassion in anger. He concluded with representing to her the strength of that attachment which, in spite of all his endeavors, he had found impossible to conquer, and with expressing his hope that it would now be rewarded by her acceptance of his hand. As he said this, she could easily see that he had no doubt of a favorable answer. He spoke of apprehension and anxiety, but his countenance expressed real security. Such a circumstance could only exasperate further, and when he ceased, the color rose into her cheeks, and she said, <laughs> In such cases as this, <laughs> it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments of vow, however unequally they may be returned. 
It is natural that obligation should be felt. If I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. I am sorry to have occasioned pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done, however, and I hope will be of short duration. The feelings which, you tell me, have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. Mr. Dorsey was leaning against the mantelpiece. His complexion became pale with anger, and the disturbance of his mind was visible in every feature, even his nose. <laughs> He was struggling for the appearance of composure and would not open his lips till he believed himself to have attained it. At length, in a voice of forced calmness, McCarthy said, <laughs> And this is all the reply which I answer have the honor of expecting. I might perhaps wish to be informed why, with so little endeavor at civility, I am thus rejected. But it is of small importance. It's good, isn't it, so far? I might as well inquire, she replied, why with so evident a desire of offending and insulting me, you choose to tell me that you like me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. Was not this some excuse for incivility if I was uncivil? But I have other provocations. You know I have. <laughs> Mr. Darcy changed color, but the emotion was short. And he listened without attempting to interrupt her while she continued, oh, <laughs> I have every reason in the world to think ill of you. No motive can excuse the unjust and ungenerous part you acted there. You dare not, you cannot deny that you have been the principal, if not the only means of dividing them from each other, of exposing one to the censure of the world for caprice and instability, the other to its derision and disappointment. It's, it's not caprice the model. <laughs> it's not caprice the model. I've got no idea what's going on, but she's not in it. No, she's not. it's not a capital C. No, it's okay. C. Caprice. Caprice. Not caprice. I say caprice. That's fine, but it's caprice. Caprice is the model who was engaged to Tony both. Adams. <laughs> in misery of the acutest kind. You won't knock me off guard. <laughs> it's the sexy looks he's giving you. <laughs> it's unnerving. He was listening with an air which proved him wholly unmoved by any feeling of remorse. He even looked at her with a smile of affected incredulity. Can you deny that you have... Oh, no, sorry, it's her. <laughs> Can you deny that you have done it? She repeated. With assumed tranquility, he then replied, I have no wish of denying that I did everything in my power to separate my friend from your sister, or that I rejoice in my success. Towards him, I have been kinder than towards myself. Did any of that make sense? No idea. What happened there? <laughs> what happened there? I think Mitch McCarthy, <laughs> yes. Was stealing Tony Adams' girlfriend Caprice. Yes. In Georgia. <laughs> Georgia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what's the upshot? The upshot is that I think I'd probably rather read Lee Child than Jane Austen. <laughs> Are we going to do any other classics? Mm. Nope. Please subscribe, <laughs> share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory, to Stephen, to Andy, to you all for being here, and to those listening at home as well. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.
Caprice. 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 Yeah. Caprice. Not Caprice. Caprice. What happened? What happened? What happened to Caprice? Sorry.